Hi gorgeous, I just wanted to say hi and tell you that uh, you're an amazing woman and I love you. The last recorded speech with Brian was a telephone message he left to his girlfriend, Alexis, the same night he went missing. Welcome to this first part of a Brian Schaefer story, a narrative. Later, we'll get to hear that message in this episode. Brian Schaefer's case being regarded as one of the most baffling and mysterious stories out there, where to even begin ironing out what might have happened to him. Almost as if the title, Vanished into Thin Air, seems to be hand-tailored for this young man's disappearance. The answers are as few today as they were back then. We have to remember in the back of our mind, the police investigation that started out more than 15 years ago has yet to provide any clues as to Brian's whereabouts, if he's dead or still alive. And investigators haven't given a hint even of what they think might have happened to him. They've conveyed during the years that they used to work his case around three possible theories, but never mentioned what these theories were about. They are adamant, however, that Brian Schaefer left the bar area and the building housing the bar that night, but have not yet provided any type of evidence that this is the case, even. The police force are ultimately a tool to enforce the law and solve crimes with, if nothing of that sort is what took place, meaning it is not illegal to run away from your life. And if we're not talking about a homicide at night or ensuing weekend, that path will likely lead nowhere in the end. The only thing we can state as fact is that Brian Schaefer is not a fictional character. He stood alive and well, perhaps somewhat inebriated, outside a bar called the Aglitona Saluna at around 2 a.m., the 1st of April 2006, and then completely vanished from the face of the earth. This podcast series will, in a number of episodes, explore and recount the various few facts that are known in a progressive and easy-to-comprehend style, and in an audio format, but doesn't leave you, the listener, completely stray. Some possible answers will be provided in some episodes. What ultimately happened is for you to decide. We will refrain from using small-time gossip posted on social media or the web throughout the years as possible theories, motives, or possible suspects. This series will also host an introductory episode, giving general type knowledge and facts about this disappearance. Please listen to that episode prior if you're totally unfamiliar with the case, or just would like to refresh your memory. My name is Edo La Rosa, and I'll be the series host for the entire duration. In a number of other episodes, we will be joined by other individuals who will contribute with their knowledge, effort and time in the end to help out and try to provide more answers than we got in this disappearance. Thank you for subscribing to the series and giving it a rating. Please share it to friends and family and check out the series on Instagram. Nothing else will be asked in return as of now. The more people we are in wanting an answer for this math student and the more spread we can give to this disappearance, the easier it will be to ultimately unravel 
what took place that April Fool's Day in 2006. Other disappearances will pop up too as we continue this journey. Hopefully, in the end, wiser, more knowledgeable about the case and hungrier for even more future content. So this missing person case centers around the capital of Ohio and the second largest city in the Midwest, Columbus. Brian Schaefer, however, grew up in a smaller city of Pickerington, considered a suburb located to the east of Columbus, together with his mom and dad, Renee and Randy, and his younger brother, Derek. In the beginning, Brian wasn't overly too focused on his academic performance but actually was more into his athletic capabilities. According to his father, he tried a lot of different sports, but really excelled and eventually settled for tennis. Reaching a point where he was the captain for the team, an important finals lay ahead. At one point, the coach told Brian that he had to start thinking about his appearance and that he basically had to cut his hair. Surprisingly or unsurprisingly, Brian let the coach know what he thought of that idea by leaving the club and eventually leaving sports altogether. So Brian probably had a portion of a rebellious character in him. But honestly, wasn't the coach familiar with Björn Borg, the tennis megastar who was world famous for his long hair? So in the end, that remark perhaps says more about the coach than about Brian. But if you see pictures of Brian, we all have these different stages in our lives where we try different appearances out. We, the male population, can't do so much more than experimenting with different hairstyles and let the beard or mustache grow. But Brian had a particular thing going for him here and seems to have taken this a step further than the average fella. His images out there are quite different from one another, even considering his age progression, with facial features almost shifting. A sign of a free-spirited individual. Being born in mid-February, certainly the description of a typical Aquarius comes to mind. Every Aquarian is a rebel at heart. These air signs despise authority and anything that represents conventionality. Brian was also really into music, and in particular the Seattle-based grunge band Pearl Jam. On Brian's MySpace account, which was the social media to use pre-Facebook and originally founded as a venue 
for aspiring musicians and bands to share music and concert dates. Brian had listed all the groups that he liked. Brian also played the guitar himself and was by all accounts quite decent at it. Several pictures of Brian show him with a guitar on his knee and a big smile on his face. Eventually heading down the academic path, the contributing factors to his career choice was his mother, Renee. She worked as a nurse and was really appreciated in the community, carrying out her profession in various hospitals and clinics. Even after treatment of her patients, Renee was known to follow up on them and went and visited them at her home, sort of to check on them. So she was quite light. And I think Brian looked at her and saw her as a role model and eventually he chose to go down the same road himself. So he began studying to become a doctor. He took classes in microbiology and studied that for six years. And then started out his doctor's degree at Ohio State University, College of Medicine. So during this period, of course, financially, the studies are quite burdensome. You don't have a lot of money to spend. Brian mediated this fact by working extra or part-time in a clothing outlet called Giuseppe. And that's where he actually met his friend Clint Florence the first time. Clint had been his co-worker at the store. But Brian sort of needed financial help to be able to study to become a doctor and also to take care of his daily expenses. So actually it seems that the person who was contributing most towards his aid was his mother. At the Ohio State University, Brian met Alexis Wagner. They were sort of introduced to each other and they fell for each other. With a lot of respect between them, she was going to be a doctor and he was going to be a doctor. They spent whatever time they had left after studying together. Alexis mentioned an episode in the beginning, which really made her fond of Brian early on. Not even a week after they had been dating, she had an accident with her car. And although safe of bodily harm, her car broke down and had been stuck at the auto repair shop. But as soon as she needed to go somewhere, Brian had been there for her. He had also taken her out to eat and they went to the movies. She never forgot this period when she had been in that situation with Brian by her side from the get-go. So they met sometime in the autumn of 2005. So when Brian disappeared, they had been together for like less than a year. And that Friday, when Brian vanished, so to say, they had had contact with each other. Brian called her at around 10 p.m., but she didn't reply, so he left her a message. Around half an hour later, she called back. Brian mentioned he was out with the boys and had the opportunity to talk about her to them. She recounted afterwards that everything sounded fine with Brian. There was nothing apparently wrong. She herself had gone to Toledo to visit her parents. It is said that their dog was quite ill, so she wanted to take the opportunity to say goodbye to the dog in case something happened. She and Brian were also heading to Florida on the 3rd of April on that coming Monday. So that's basically the reason that she left Columbus that day and went to Toledo. While being there on the weekend, she started to call Brian to check on him. Brian didn't answer his phone. She thought in the beginning that since Brian had been out drinking and celebrating, that he just needed to rest or to sleep, 
As the unanswered calls kept stacking up, she felt his bad vibes. That something wasn't right. The first thing she did when she got back to Columbus was that she immediately headed over to his apartment to check on him. They actually had their own apartments. They were kind of small, so they had one each apartment. And now with Alexis inside his apartment, everything in there suggested to her that nothing had happened in there, basically. Brian's belongings were still there. The car was parked outside. No one seems to have taken a shower. The bathroom hadn't been used. So who knows what went on in her head. She must have been very sick. But she contacts his father, Randy, and also his brother Derek, get to know about this. So they both headed out to the apartment to try to assess what was going on. Derek recounts his moment heading out to Brian's apartment. He felt relieved that he saw the lights were on, indicating that Brian was at home. Of course, then he found out it had been Alexis who had turned them on when she looked for Brian. But when he saw Brian's eyeglasses on the cupboard, he felt something was really wrong here. In the beginning of March 2006, tragedy had struck the Schiff family. Rene passed away from cancer. Of course, Brian took it hard. Renee had been particularly ill during Christmas, and she laid in the hospital during Christmas Eve. It must have been awful for him, starting to become a doctor, to see his own mother passing away from an incurable illness like that. But Brian passed by to visit her as often as he could, and Renee's last gift to him was that trip that they were going to make to Florida. She wanted them to go and really experience a memorable time together. And Brian put a lot of effort in his trip to try to create this wonderful occasion for them. The father recounted when people tried to put forward if Brian could have hit it, left everyone by his own intentions that night. He usually reminded them of a Christmas card Brian had wrote his mom while she lay in the hospital. And Brian had read it to her. You inspired me to do great things one day. Was that great thing just running away that first of April, leaving everyone in love behind? Randy said. Going ahead to the 31st of March, it was the start of the spring break holiday, and Brian had made some plans for the evening. So he started out by having a dinner with his father at the steakhouse outside of Columbus in a place called Reynoldsburg. It was the family's place when I went out to dine. There is an interview with Randy where he sort of talks about this when he headed out to the Outback Steakhouse, that they had the same food that they usually ate. But this time around, Brian actually had a drink, which never happened when he used to go there with his mom. This dinner seems to have been like an hour long, roughly. Randy recollects that they came around 7.30, and by 8.30, Brian was sort of back at the apartment. It's been sort of suggested that Brian headed out to settle the differences that they might have had. Brian was offended by something the father supposedly had done. But for me, like an hour is more or less... You meet up, you have something to eat, and then you move on. So I don't know how many conclusions we can draw from this dinner that they had. Randy mentioned that he was kind of upset himself in this sentimental mood because his wife had just perished. Brian was the one who comforted him. Brian seemed to be doing quite all right, except that he had been pulling these one-nighters studying the whole week leading up to this Friday. He had basically been studying the whole night and then in the morning went back to school. Then he came back home, and then he started again, and so forth, the whole week. And of course, on top of that, you have your own mother's death. So surely, he had had a hard time, 
but by all indications, Brian really looked forward to going out at night, like as soon as possible. And Randy had his opinion about this. He was thinking like, why don't you just take it easy? After all that's happened this past few weeks. But he didn't want to meddle. That's how it was. So the last exchange between Brian and his father after they met up this evening was that Randy asked Brian to come and help him out the following day on Saturday because Randy needed some help with cleaning out the shed and move some stuff out of his home now that Renee had passed away. That was the idea in Randy's mind that he was going to meet Brian on the following day, Saturday. So now, continuing the evening, Brian meets up with his friend, Clint. Clint Florence had been his co-worker and then they had been sharing a room together at one point during their studies. Clint had opted for a more scientific role and put in hours working as an assistant professor in the medical field at OSU. So in a sense, Brian and Clint had been pretty close to each other. They were hardly the best friends on earth, but nowadays they liked each other's company and were more like drinking buddies. Their relationship, as with many others, had these strengths and weaknesses. This model that they had accepted between them. Brian was more the alpha male and took more initiatives. Clint was more eloquent and cunning perhaps, and the more relaxed guy. He actually enjoyed Clint's company in his manner. It was sort of the perfect partner for him this evening to go out with. So actually Clint meets up with Brian at his apartment, because Clint drove his car and actually parked his car at Brian's apartment. Then they began this stroll towards the bar area, the campus area in downtown Columbus. Brian's apartment was located about six blocks away from the first bar that they planned to visit, which was the bar where it all ended basically. But they head out to the Ugly Tuna Salona, and half an hour later, they end up there and take three to four shots of liquor each. So they don't stay too long, but they continue this sort of bar hopping from bar to bar. They go to a bar called The Short North, and they stay there for 15-20 more minutes. Then they head out to a bar called Brothers, one called Red Star. And eventually, during this time, Clint has some contact with his friend, a woman called Meredith. They actually agree that Meredith is going to pick them up with her car. But this time, at this last bar, before they were going back to the Agletona Salona, they were in a new district, close to a new stadium that was built, called the Arena District. So they were a couple of miles away to the Agletona Salona, where they had planned to finish off the evening. So at a street called Wine Street, she picks them up, and she drives them to the South Campus area on High Street, and eventually parks a car in a designated garage, and then continue on foot towards the bar. So previously, this part of downtown Columbus, in that proximity to this university campus, was actually quite run down. There were a lot of smaller streets with cozy bars and restaurants, but there was also quite a bit of crime going on. So the idea was to sort of enhance this area and give it a better reputation. So they started to purchase a lot of these properties. They demolished the old buildings and they built a new. One of these new buildings that was constructed was the South Gateway Complex. This building was the gateway in to the perimeter of the OSU campus area. The Aglitona Salona Bar was situated on the second floor. So you had this entrance on the ground floor, and then you took the escalators up to the next floor. 
and you had the bar entrance on your right side. And if you went to the left, you had the Skateway Cinema, which was the better part of the second floor. Some other properties in other directions inside the complex were still opening up, so parts of the Gateway building were still under construction. Outside of the building, a particular sign adorned the facade. You've probably all seen it by now. Daglitona Salona. Fresh fish, ugly owners. The idea of the bar was to serve all these university students. They had issued fish bowls, but also provided food. So I should mention that when I found out about Brian's case, I've never actually been so much into true crime before, but I was watching many episodes on a true crime YouTube program called That Chapter. So about 20 videos in, it just popped up. The disappearance of Brian Schaefer. And actually watching it, it seemed regularly exciting. I wasn't really overwhelmed by that point. But around that time, we had the incident with the Saudi dissident, Jamal Khashoggi. And that whole case was still fresh in my mind. This Washington Post columnist had taken a refuge in the US, but had traveled to Turkey to the consulate in Istanbul, together with his fiance, to do some paperwork to be able to marry her. He heads over there, accompanied by his fiance, and he enters the building, but fails to exit, and was never seen again. The fiance, who waited for him outside, starts to ask questions, and sounded the alarm. What happened was that Jamal never left the consulate building because he was killed inside. A hit squad of more or less 15 people had landed in a private plane and were waiting for him inside the building. Perhaps a hint, in retrospect, to what is necessary to pull off a stunt like this. But then it came to my mind that this individual, Brian Schaefer, he had entered the bar, but is never seen leaving, so I made this connection immediately. So I wanted to check things out to have some more background info on how this happened. When I started to check things out, I was stuck. So that's how it began. So I became curious and set out with the idea that something happened to Brian inside the bar. The layout of the bar, and if something had transpired in there, get my primary intention, and was important to understand. But I met some hurdles directly, because this bar, now it turned out, was situated inside another building. And it looked like the bar was kind of small also, for something major to have happened in there. So this building, the South Gateway Complex, was basically big like a whole block. The main street outside, called High Street, was heavily trafficked. To be able to reach the Gateway Building entrance, you walked on this traffic-free street promenade that had other places and shops along the way. Midway, you had the Gateway entrance, and further down, you came to the parking garage. Passing the corner of the building, this side was considered the back of the building and had the loading docks. And there was a back exit on this side where businesses like Dagletona Salona could manage the deliveries that went to the bar. Passing the building to the opposite corner led you where the store was being set up, the Sunflower Market. This market was directly opposite to the Wendish restaurant that was located across the street at the time. Returning to the courtyard area, some of these places that were situated on this ground courtyard outside the gateway entrance had cameras of their own. The other side by the market was more in the shadow. Construction at the time was conducted all along the ground floor spaces of the building. A safe path, if you will, a hallway, led you from within the building 
to the back exit and to be able to conduct this construction. There were two large outside entrances set up. One was located by the Jim and Jones restaurant at this courtyard adjacent to the gateway entrance and the other one was located opposite side of Wendy's restaurant by the Sunflower Market. What's also mentioned in connection to Brian's case was the Mad Max restaurant, which was directly beneath the terrace. The Aglituna Saluna had a terrace that ran all along one side of the bar. Patrons could exit the terrace to get some fresh air and sit outside. Basically, you could have jumped down from this terrace, but you would have been noticed because you ended up on this crowded street promenade and you would have hit yourself on the roof of the outdoor sitting for the Mad Max restaurant. So the bar itself, when you entered, you had this square-shaped room, and in the middle was the bar desk, with benches, tables and stools on the sides. The kitchen was on the left, not particularly big, and in the upper right corner you had the black painted stage where the live band played. And I remember reading a comment that Brian could have hidden under the stage until the bar closed and then something had happened from there. But the stage was sort of diagonal in shape, quite small actually. I managed to find some pictures and for a person to crawl under there and hide. Brian was around 6 foot 2, so no. On that same side as the stage, he also had a terrace that I previously mentioned. Also looking further into his case, there seems to be talk of an emergency exit made me wonder where it was and where it led, because basically by now my conclusion that Brian met with foul play in the bar didn't seem to add up. So I became even more intrigued by the fact that Brian must have left somehow. So looking more into this emergency exit, if this could have been a way out, I was able to find more information about it. So this exit was located directly on your right side when entering the square shaped room, which was the bar itself really. But there were a lot of comments about this emergency exit door, that there was an alarm that was supposed to go off, so the staff inside the bar were supposed to be notified if someone opened this door. But if you get out of this emergency exit door, or fire escape, you pass the hallway, emergency stairs, but then you ended up to an exit adjacent to the downstairs gateway entrance. You basically got back to where you were from the beginning. Moreover, these emergency exit doors on street level were monitored by a CCTV camera on the opposite side of the street that was supposed to zoom in if these doors were open. Evidently, the zoom function had been overridden by the Aglitona Saluna staff. What they told the detectives was that they had placed someone outside to watch over this exit. So if someone was to exit this way, the staff would have known about this. And they told the detectives that that evening no one exited the bar that way. In conjunction with this, there was an older web page that was created by a woman called Laura Davis, which is a very affluent person in the Brian Schaefer case. She's basically been keeping his mystery and disappearance alive throughout all these years. She was a person who got to know Randy. She saw him on an interview on the television and she couldn't stop thinking of his son Brian and she felt sorry for Randy and his son's disappearance. So she got in contact with him, and she helped him out a lot. They actually became dear friends after this. So Lori created all these websites, and the most prominent one is called findbrianschafer.com. But there were earlier versions also that I examined, and there was this comment section, and one of the comments was, 
if the detectives involved in the search for Brian had been aware that there was a camera in one of the coffee shops located on the opposite side of the entrance of the gateway complex, because there could have been some footage of Brian there. And the reply from Laurie was, yes, actually the detectives had shared this footage with Randy already, and that they could rule out two things basically. That it didn't exit the gateway entrance by means of taking the escalators down because he wasn't captured on video outside the entrance. And also, they could rule out that it didn't leave by means of taking the emergency exit, because the emergency exit was adjacent to the entrance, and it would have been picked up by the same footage if that had been the case. So talking about emergency exit, I feel there is an emergency to end this episode. And I will continue at a later date with the release of part 2, with the bar closing, the footage, which way Brian eventually headed out, the searches. So make sure to subscribe to the series, spread the word to family and friends, and I'll see you in the next one.